I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We're located on the web at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. Thank you. I'm speaking with John Michalschek, author of Blood, Guts, and Grease, George S. Patton in World War I. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for having me, Chris. So first, um, tell me, and I'll actually grab my copy and just show it on the screen here. Um, here's the book. There you go. And, uh, yeah, tell me, have you, uh, how did you get into writing a book on this subject, on Patton? Um, it probably goes back 15 years or so uh, to grad school, where I uh, as a senior, I think it was this, I was a senior in college uh, as an undergrad, and I worked, got to know Martin Blumenson who is the, the patent biographer, wrote the uh, two volumes of the patent papers. Uh, he also wrote one or two books of the Green Books for the uh, U.S. Army Center of Military History, the official histories of World War II. And we got to talking a few times uh, over the next two or three years before he passed away in 2005. And one of the things he mentioned to write about, one was my first book, Mark Clark. Uh, which was about Mark Clark and the Fifth Army in the United States uh, in World War II. Mm-hmm. And then the second book was, or the second idea was he, Patton was what he was best known for. And he thought a standalone book on Patton in World War I was something to consider mm-hmm. and something that he had looked into. Uh, but by this time he was in, in his 80s, uh, wasn't writing as much. Mm-hmm. And he was only had done World War II. And that was his goal. And so it was one of those things I stored away. I uh, kind of wrote about it for my master's thesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then this is just the book. Uh, after my Clark book came out, I wrote a little pu- uh, publication for uh, the Center of Military History on Operation Enduring Freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I decided to give go back into the world of Patton and focus on his uh, Korean World War One. Also, it was the 100th anniversary World War One. Uh, the U.S. Army was re-emphasizing conventional war at tanks, and so I thought it kind of made sense. So, um, how does this book, apart from being Patton in World War One, how do you say it uh, differs from other writings on Patton in this period? Um, it's there's a couple things. I think the one of the main things what makes it different is it's the only standalone book on. Patton in World War One. Uh, most there's countless books on Patton. Uh, some are very good, some are not. Uh, they focus almost entirely on World War Two. Some don't even really focus on anything prior to 1940, uh, or it starts with some of his uh, 38, 39, 1940. Uh, so this book it solely focuses on his World War One career, uh, which I'm kind of lying a little bit because I, st- I stretched it to start in 1916. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you take a look at a lot of patent books, books on patent or books on his campaigns, the don't really mention World War One or it's mentioned in passing. And it's there was no emphasis, no reason. They, and the way it makes Patton look is that he kind of uh, just appeared out of a vacuum in 1940 mm-hmm. and that he was this, you know, already this made figure. And it really started in World War One where he learned kind of to become the Patton we all know that George C. Scott played in the uh, Patton movie. So how did you uh, 
so I assume the book goes chronologically through this period. I am a historian. We always go chronological. <laughs> so, um, so how did, uh, so was there so much material that you could pare it down and just focus on specific issues or did you find that you were, you know, you, you had, uh, some gaps there. How, how did you approach the, the Yeah. So the original idea of the book was going to, it's not a terribly long book. Um, part of that is on purpose. Part of that was I had to stretch it out further and then we'll kind of take it out of the, um, what I found was a patent prior to the Mexican expedition, the punitive expedition in 1916. Mm -hmm. Uh, he, there's, there's not, a, it was the traditional army jobs, army positions he was doing. And prior to world war two, the army was small. So he was slow promotion rate, uh, kind of living in kind of not the best locations, especially with his wife, who uh, her adjustment to Army life took some time. Uh, there's not a lot of big drama, no real story there. It's kind of interesting, but it's the typical pre-World War One Army uh, story. And then why I picked 1916 is because I think that's where he begins to develop the persona that becomes this George Patton we know, the one from World War Two. And I think it's tied a lot directly to just not his what he did in Mexico, but getting to work for and getting to know John Pershing. And it's Pershing is who he kind of molds himself after. And he then adds his own little Patton-esque spin on this character. And the way I kind of view it is, uh, the Patton that we know from World War II is he, he invented that character in 1916, 1917, World War I. And he, it was, I think, a mix of how he thought Pershing acted, looked, performed, and then he added his own personality traits to it. And when you see Patton emerge in 1940 for World War II, uh, he's no longer playing the character. He is this George Patton. That's who he is. And World War One, George Patton is, um, as far as gaps, he, he wrote extensively in his personal diary as well as his military diary. Um, and what I liked out of his World War One diary is it's much more honest uh, than his World War Two diaries, uh, which Martin Blumenson wrote extensively. Uh, he wrote two volumes, and it, he does cover World War One, but a lot of it's the second volume is almost entirely World War Two. In World War One, he's just a junior officer, just a cog in the machine, and he tends to give what I think is a more honest opinion of what's going on, his performance, the performance of others. And when in World War Two, he knows he's a general officer, he's destined for bigger commands, and he even writes that he knows in 50 years later there will be historians looking at his journals and diaries. And because of that, he covers some things up. He's probably not as honest as he is in World War One, which um, I think is helpful for a historian. Mm -hmm. So why did he feel the need to create, you know, if he's modeling himself after Pershing, is it just so he can be a better officer, or was there any other uh, motivation? Oh, I think it's partially he, and Patton wasn't the only one. Uh, Pershing was held up as the epitome of, like, the soldier. Uh, as an officer, the big hero of World War One, um, and I think Patton also. I think he liked kind of the things Pershing did: uh, attention to detail, formality, saluting things like that. Uh, where Patton makes it his own is 
Um, he always kind of had a, a, a dirty mouth, which in the army really is not new. That's just, he's just written more about it. Uh, but his use of profanity, uh, kind of showing off is where I think he takes his version of Pershing and makes his own unique kind of character, which is Patton. I think in Patton's mind, he thought that was what a ideal field commander or a commanding officer should be. Someone that's willing to be, be in the front lines, expose themselves to danger. And then also though, look the part, ramp, be, be kind of tough with his subordinates, you know, kind of ramrod straight when he stands, very formal. And I think that that's where Patton kind of developed this persona. I think it's just he thought that's what a good commander should do and act like. Did he expect to be um, an infantry guy all the way to the top, or where did where did tanks come in? How did that? Yeah, so he was a cavalry officer by training, um, and that was always the he grew up with horses in California. Uh, so he liked horses. He liked horsemanship. Polo was he was a, a decent polo player when he wasn't falling off horses, which tended to happen to him. Um, so when he's in uh, the Mexican expedition and then uh, World War One, he's a staff officer under Pershing. He is a cavalry officer. Uh, and what happens is pretty much immediately, and I do think this was more or less his long-term plan, he wanted to command. And he, as a staff officer, he was only a captain. Uh, and he was getting promoted a little quicker because of the war. Uh, the staff officers were getting promoted slower. Uh, but he had, he was debating between going infantry, um, because it was a, the quickest way, easiest way to command. He would be a battalion commander, brigade commander. Um, he was not an infantry officer by training, but, uh, he, that's something he was kicking around. The way tanks kind of came up, it was him and some of his mentors talking about this new tank, the creation of maybe a tank corps. And I think it appealed to Patton because in many ways a tank is just a metal horse to him. Uh, it's, it was new. He liked technology. He was also very good, uh, because of his wife's wealth. He had a lot of experience with automobiles, which in 1917, the average military officer in the U.S. did not have. And so he knew how to fix, repair engines. He knew how they worked. And I think when it, he had the option of going to a new core, a new branch, um, he was a little gun shy because he also understood specialty branches, new branches don't tend to become, they don't promote, they don't become general officers. Uh, but he said as long, he was thinking was as long as the war was going to continue, uh, the benefit of taking the tank core position was, he would be on the entry level. And then over the next year or two, when he built it up, he knew he would be the first to then be a school director. And then when, when enough tanks were, tankers were trained, he would lead them into the, uh, the fight. And so he thought that was his best chance for promotion, best chance at glory, medals. Um, and there, there were times in 1917 before he made the official decision, he, one uh, one night he had was committed to go on infantry. Then the next night he backed off, and then the next night he thought about tanks, and ultimately he just decided, after sitting on it, thinking on it, talking to his wife, his father, his friends, his mentors, uh, the tanks were the best bet, and ultimately it paid off. He uh, went to became a colonel, full colonel, 06, and was a brigade commander. 
Um, and if he would have gone infantry, he would have been one of thousands of battalion brigade commanders. But uh, he was one of the only tank commanders. And that's what I think the appeal was. It sounds like um, since he wanted to become a general officer so badly that he was very motivated to make the tank succeed in war. Um, that's the impression I get. Did did you see that, and did it affect how he um, used the tank in war? In World yeah, War. So, yeah, I think no matter what he was going to do, he would have made it succeed. Um, whether that was going cavalry, infantry, even you know artillery, if he would have done that, um, I think it's one of the big motivators that made him successful. Because uh, ultimately, I think he was a very good trainer, um, and he was really the first tank officer in U.S. Army history. And because of that, he had a lot of responsibility, which he liked. Um, and this is something that a lot of captains in today's Army uh, wouldn't be able to have this much freedom, this much authority. Mm-hmm. Um, but what he did was when he became a the tanker, he had the ability to not only pick the tank the Army was going to use, uh, but he uh, was going to make corrections to it and then train it and then lead it. And so I think um, it was going to succeed no matter what. Um, and I think the fact that Patton grew to really love tanks only made it easier for him. Um, and I think where this is where I would probably differ than most historians on Patton is he, when it comes to tank warfare, tank doctrine, he was tended to be more accurate, more his theories were more were what became tank doctrine. Uh, he was a little bit more forward thinking than I think some historians will paint him out to be. Um, now he had to kind of mesh that with this feeling that he knew. And when he joined the tank corps, he knew he was not going to stay in the tank corps the rest of his life. Uh, his goal was when the war ends, he would go back to Calvary because he knew that's how he'd get promoted. That's how he'd make general officer. Uh, but in, when he was in tanks, he really, I think he figured out that tanks, in 1918, World War I, were the future of warfare, but they weren't real, they weren't technologically ready, and doctrinally, they weren't ready, because they were making up doctrine as they went, and what he wrote in some of his lectures during the war, right, as the war ended, 1918, 1919, and then when he went to Meyer to help write tank doctrine, uh, he did, I think he did a decent job balancing future versus present. And he understood that tanks eventually would be a separate branch, could be the tip of the spear, uh, be a leading element. But he, he understood, too, that the big army and the technology was not there yet. And he gets in a couple intellectual discussions, articles back and forth in the Calvary Journal, Infantry Journal. And um, he argues that tanks should remain with the cavalry. But ultimately, they'll be their own branch. Uh, but he's not going to say anything more radical than that because he doesn't want to, it to affect his career or his promotion chances. How much of a, how much ability did he have to pick the um, the officers and perhaps personnel within his um, his tank command during World World War One? Yeah, um, he had uh, some, particularly in the real early days when it was just him. His he's who eventually become kind of his uh, battalion commanders, um, become, he has a bit of an ability to pick them. 
Uh, and the one that he really fought for was Salerno Brett, who's kind of the uns- unsung hero of the U.S. Tank Corps and World War One. The uh, and he's really the one that he's the main lieutenant for Patton, and they just clicked personally to, and he was Salerno Brett was everything he Patton wanted in a subordinate. Uh, now, when it came to picking soldiers, the average common tanker, um, he didn't handpick any of them for the most part. But what he tried to do was he kept the requirements for a tanker pretty broad, but he wanted them to have some driving experience. Uh, and he preferred folks that had some mechanical background that could work with their hands. Because uh, even in 2019, tankers, to some extent, are mechanics. And he understood that from tinkering with cars. And working with some of the tanks. So he, he was, when he, he fought for Salerno Brett was one of the ones he fought for because he was a, uh, excellent machine gun instructor. And the army didn't want to lose him, but he eventually brings him over. There's a few others. Uh, and then the tankers, the common taker, it's, he, he was hoping for more mechanical driving folks. And some of his soldiers were chauffeurs before the war. And that's the only reason they were in the tank or they just had driven before. And some other guys were just uh, mechanics, worked uh, with their hands. Uh, but when they eventually get the school up and the tank corps begins to fill out, it's they're just getting recruits, and he does uh, his best with them, how he trains them. What were his thoughts at this time on um, using the tank combined with artillery and with uh, air power? Um. He always understood, and this is where I, I don't, he's not a tank zealot, and by the, night, the National Defense Act of 1920, which kind of stops the growth of the tank corps, uh, he, and he makes the decision to go to Cavalry Corps, he won't write a lot. He understood that tanks were best used combined, combined arms. He understood he was a historian. Um, he'd gone to all the PM, the professional military education schools. Uh, he had witnessed the firsthand that war is best waged in the modern era of combined arms. Uh, when it, he doesn't really focus a lot on artillery in any of his writings, he understood its value because World War I, it's the king of battle. It's the important thing. Um, when it came to air power, this is where his focus, affinity to technology, uh, paid off. He, now that said, he'll never really combine it with air power. But he, if he would, the war would have lasted longer. He stayed in the tank core community longer. Um, I wouldn't have been shocked if he would have tied those closer together. Because uh, early in the war, when he arrives in France, he uh, goes on his first airplane ride, and Billy Mitchell happened to be the pilot. Mm-hmm. And it, it is kind of funny to think about those two hanging out. Um, it would have been interesting. Um, and his letters back to his wife and his dad, he loved flying. It scared him, but he loved it. Mm-hmm. And he understood inherently the potential value of it. But like planes, just like tanks, they weren't quite there yet for the technology. Uh, but I think if he would have stayed in it, he would have tied air power closer to um, tanks. Uh, his main problem he had was with the infantry, which he did not have a real uh, positive view of. And to some extent, this is him being patent, him being a tanker. Um, he, the big problem he had, and this is something that uh, most folks, when they read about military history, don't think about, but that why doctrine does matter. Um, when he would go to plan operations in 1918, 
uh, these big infantry divisions and units didn't know anything about tanks. They just see this thing on treads that can move pretty quick and they didn't know its limitations. And so because of that, he's fighting constantly with the infantry world. Um, and one of the big fights he has, and he will win some, lose some. Uh, and that's where his boss, uh, Brigadier General Samuel Rockenbach, does a good job trying to give him some cover. Uh, but when he comes with the infantry divisions, they always expect the tanks to be driven to the front. And Patton will lose his mind a few times. He almost gets in trouble. Um, because he te- he keeps telling these planners you can't drive these to the front because by the time they get there, the tanks will be broken down, run out of gas. They needed to be uh, railroaded in, and that's because there was no doctrine between. And the infantry world didn't understand tanks. Then when it came to actual combat, and this is where I I sympathize with the infantrymen. Uh, he always was yelling at them, criticizing them, uh, hitting, hitting them over the head with shovels as he did one time. Um, the infantry was always supposed to keep up with his tanks. And when they would finally go over out of the trench line, the infantry always fell back. And it's because they're running into machine gun nests, artillery fire. Uh, they're not as protected as the tankers. And he was constantly trying to get the infantry to keep up. And because of the terrain, the artillery, all the, the small arms fire, they just never could. And he viewed that as they were ill-trained, cowardly. And when it was, if he was in their same shoes, he probably shouldn't have been doing anything different either. Yeah. I, I recall a previous interview, uh, an historian who had written on World War One tanks, he had mentioned a letter he came across where Patton was worried he, he might have ki- uh, nearly killed a soldier by hitting him, trying to get him to... You know, yeah, fight. yeah, and that um, it foreshadows in some extent what he'll do in World War II with the slapping incidents. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and uh, I and yeah, it's um, I think he even commented he wasn't sure he might have killed him. He wasn't sure, mm-hmm. uh, but that was that I mentioned that in the book too because it mentioned it shows his disdain for the infantry mm-hmm. and all the infantry guy. What he was, he all of a sudden he sees some colonel that he's never met screaming at him to help dig this tank out, mm-hmm. and the infantryman's like, I'm not. I'm not helping you, and so he wonks him on the head. So, so which uh, uh, wouldn't what wasn't probably legal then? It's not legal now. So yeah, yeah. Um, are there any other? Uh, where I, so I'll I'll be asking you about what you used to do your research. But before we go to that, are there any other issues or or parts of the book you'd like to mention that we haven't touched on yet? Um. Now, I, there's a, the one thing I think I, I think we is we understand more things about the brain in 2019. Uh, the one thing I kind of it's this is dangerous for a historian, but you you've, you've talked to enough historians, you know historians. Um, we a lot of historians, in my opinion, like to play armchair psychologists, mm-hmm. and it's dangerous because he's not on the sofa. We can't talk to him. But um, I did theorize and i admit freely admit i have no evidence because he's can't can't examine him can't talk to him we don't have his brain um i mentioned the role of cte in some of his later life and he does get a handful of concussions in world war one that will um he tends to be accident prone he's not a great athlete kind of clumsy and because he likes cars so much he goes through a few windshields in his life Oh, wow. Yes, and it, and it ends. We know how he ends. His life ends in a car wreck. 
I mentioned that I think some of his behavior post uh, 40 towards the end of World War II, the end of the war. Um, I just I wonder if the the collection of concussions he had is a youth, is a avid polo player who got knocked out cold numerous times, mm-hmm. uh, who had been through numerous windshields, been uh, blown up in combat countless times. That I, I do wonder if some of his behavior in 44, 45 is explained by repeated concussions or CTE, uh, which has been big, particularly in the sports world. And that's one thing I, uh, debated whether or not to write that, keep that in, uh, cause ultimately we don't have a lot of proof, but I think, um, that's something in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years as more historians write on patent, which they will. The, that's something that we need to kind of start thinking about. And you could do that with, a lot of historical figures like Joe Hooker and uh, Chancellorsville and uh, the Civil War. And so that's one thing. I think it's something to for readers, but for average people to kind of start thinking about uh, the role of all these concussions to some of these military leaders. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So what um, what resources did you use to, to do this, to write this book? Yeah, so Patton is relatively easy to uh, research. Uh, he, because he wrote so much throughout his life, um, his diaries are a wealth of knowledge. And as I mentioned, his World War One diaries, which when a historian uses any source, they got to take it with a grain of salt. And with Patton, it's usually a big spoon of salt. But in World War One, um, it, it's, I relied a lot because I also, the, the scope of the book was World War One kind of how Patton viewed it and then how it helped shape him further in his career and then into World War II. Um, so I used a lot of the, his papers, which are at the Library of Congress in D.C. Um, and those I have used before, so I'm familiar with them. Um, I also used a lot of the archive uh, material for a lot of the units in World War One, which is at uh, College Park, Maryland. The uh, National Archives 2, NARA 2, as they call it. And I made pretty good use of the VMI archives, the Virginia Military Institute, um, where they have some of his, he did go there for a year. His family had a tie to a uh, lineage to VMI. And it's also where Samuel Rockenbach's papers were located. And he was the chief uh, or to Patton's boss for the tank corps. And I also then, along, so with all the narrative resources, which has everything a modern historian really needs, uh, and then the papers of Rockenbach and Patton, it gives you a pretty good picture of what Patton thought of the war, how he viewed the war, his thoughts on things going on in 1917, 1918. And then I found the Rockenbach papers uh, very interesting because he's very forgotten. Um, he doesn't go on to become a famous World War II general because he's older. Uh, he uh, never got along well with Patton. Well, or I should say Patton never got along well with him. Um, but he had a unique view of Patton that no one else had because he was his boss. And he worked with him pretty much on a daily basis for over two years. And what I found about Rockenbach, who is kind of a humorless figure, that Patton feels is kind of uh, not a, not original not aggressive, just kind of this old, the old guard, 
But what I think Rockenbach does a good job for it is he gives Patton a lot of administrative cover. Um, and that, and that's a, a theme throughout Patton's career. His dad even talks about it in 1915, 1916, that basically Patton's a terrible politician. Um, cause he runs his mouth. He's too emotional. Uh, that bravado in his mouth gets him in trouble as it will much later on in his life. And if he, because of Rockenbach's position, he, kept a lot of the bigger army out of Patton's hair and more importantly, kept all the allies out of Patton's uh, kind of day-to-day job uh, because Patton did not enjoy working with the French, uh, did not enjoy particularly the British and found the allies just to be in the way of what his goal was, which is winning the war fighting. And he is throughout his whole life. He's very pro French. He's a Francophile. His wife, um, was educated in France. Patton spoke French fairly fluently. They travel all the time. He loved anything French. That's one of the reasons he picks the remote bank. Um, but he found working with the French at times painful. Um, there was too much red tape for him, which he never will able to handle that. And Achenbach does a pretty good job of that, and it shows in his papers. Um, he has to go to all these inter-allied tank committees, which just last for days hours a day and it's just minutia and there's no way Patton uh, could have survived that or he would have gotten kicked out of country because he, he would have said something yeah. there's just no What did you find for this book, researching this book, what did you find that was most surprising to you? That's a good question. Um, most surprising, oh, well, that's, I think I got, this will pro- I'll probably, I brought this up in a few other talks. Um, his relationship with his wife surprised me more in how um, he relied on her. I don't want to say cl- the, how close they were. Uh, because there is a part of me that maybe it's because I'm a historian, a professional skeptic, um, his wife's wealth and just a shoulder to kind of talk to, even though they were across the ocean, um, was real important and real helpful for Pat. Um, the wealth part is no, real noticeable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also partially why he's viewed by some World War II generals with disdain as an example, Omar Bradley, who never liked Patton. Um, part of that goes back to even pre, uh, pre world war two, the interwar period. Uh, Patton was so wealthy and he did like to show it off. It, it rubbed a lot of, uh, his peers the wrong way. Like Omar Bradley, who was, uh, pretty poor throughout his career. Um, and his wife's money is real helpful for Patton. And, um, not just cause he's always buying horses, dogs, uh, but he, it allows him to buy automobiles, which he does in, uh, 1917, where he buys a Packard just at the drop of a hat, um, for $4,500 or so in 1917 money. And it's not in, that's roughly like 90,000 today's money. And it's not a, it's barely mentioned. He just says, tell, send me some more money. Um, and that's something no one else really could have done by patent. Um, but what stood out to me was 
interesting was his attempt to get his wife Beatrice overseas with him. Hmm. Um, and partially was driven because unlike most of the army, he had been away from her for a while because of, he was in Mexico. And he thought it was wrong of the army that he could not bring his wife over. And this is where the, this is where Patton has the negative side of his leadership is sometimes he thinks the rules don't apply to him. And because of his service in Mexico, he thought it was only fair to bring his wife over. And for six months, they write every day and Patton almost every day has a new scheme. Uh, and because of her wealth, it's not a real issue. It's just finding the right time. And what I found interesting too was he tries to use Pershing more than I anticipated. Um, he was very close with Pershing. They did just get along and they will until the slapping incidents. And that's when they kind of fall out. Uh, but he also, he will make a big deal in his letters, uh, later on, 1918, but his wife, his sister, uh, Nita Patton was engaged to Pershing and they met through George Patton and Patton will write that when they break up, I'm kind of glad they broke up because now if I get promoted, everyone will think it's because of her, the relationship. But when they were dating, he used it and tried to pressure Pershing to get, uh, to allow Beatrice to come over hmm. and he would do it by saying, Hey, bring Nita over. And then, you know, you have someone to talk to and, you know, be good for you. And I think he really was, was trying to get needed to come over. So then he could say, Hey, Beatrice, come over. Yeah. And I think ultimately the reason he didn't, I'm not so sure Beatrice Patton wanted to come over to uh, Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, and she hinted about maybe being a Red Cross nurse and he, Patton was a hundred percent opposed to that. No, no way. And I think he thought it was beneath her. Yeah. Um, but what stood out was their, this the relationship was a little stronger than I thought, and it, it was actually genuine at times because part of me wonders if Patton uh, started to how do I put this date her, you know, get in a relationship with her because he knew she he knew she was wealthy and he knew that would help his career um, because he does chide her a lot for things that most husbands probably shouldn't do. He constantly is asking her, you know, she's staying in shape. Uh, the hair thing is really, and my wife was even kind of surprised by this, and she does not like history, but she found this kind of interesting. He writes all the time, like, hey, you know, before I see you dye your hair, I don't want to see any gray hair. And he does things like that, which is kind of um, humorous 100 years later. I'm not sure it was a good move in 1918, but yeah. – uh, his relationship with his wife was more intense than I thought. Um, and it, I think it also helped him stay out of trouble because he tended to use her and then Patton's his dad as a, uh, when he would get really angry, he would write these real hasty letters to him. And I think he kind of vented to them. Yeah. And she was always very supportive of, of him. And while his dad, Patton's dad tried to be a little more of a fatherly figure, tell him like, you know, maybe see it from their view, calm down, things like that. Um, so it really put his relationship with his wife in perspective. Um, and that's something that historians don't touch on for a lot of reasons. Um, but I think there's actually was a little more there than I thought. What did, uh, so researching this particular book, um, what did you find most enjoyable? Was there anything different to it? Uh, well, see, I think it, 
anytime you take on a book project, I hope you enjoy it. Because if not, those days of researching and eight-hour days of writing are going to be uh, kind of long. Um, so I enjoyed, again, I mentioned his wife. The letters to his wife I found at times very comical. Um, it's also a good thing. You know, I'll tell my sons, probably don't write letters like this when you're older uh, to your girlfriend. Um I did enjoy, too, his waffling back and forth between going tanks, going infantry, staying as staff officer, uh, because I think when I, we think of Patton, we think of someone that's pretty definitive and set, and he's a lot more human in World War I than he is in World War II. Uh, I think if that, if that makes sense. And then I did enjoy, you, you begin to see it when the tanks start to show up, soldiers start to show up, he becomes to be a real school and then a real branch. He he begins to, the things that make Patton famous in World War II, the saluting, the cursing, the uh, profanity-laden spe- speeches, those begin to appear. Um, they're no longer divisions or armies, but it's to a group of officers, 10 of them in the morning. And their reaction is very similar to the soldiers and officers in, in uh, World War II. Uh, the soldiers that are maybe more religious find it a little off-putting. Uh, the ones that maybe just get Patton, understand Patton, they find him to be the best leader they had. Hmm. And you can see, I think, what based on how these officers and soldiers reacted, it told Patton that, hey, this is working, it's effective. And I do think what Patton was a... Excellent trainer. And that's something, again, a lot of historians, it's focused on tanks, tacking, uh, battle of the bulge, all that stuff. But he was a very competent military officer. Um, he was an exceptional officer at times, even too. So, uh, it was, it was interesting seeing him mature and grow into these jobs because when he starts the war, he's technically a second lieutenant and he ends the war as a colonel and he goes from basically a platoon leader, brigade commander in two years. And he doesn't really have too many issues doing that. And that's something that not a lot of officers can do. Some are very good at small tactical units. Some are bigger in these big organizations. But Patton, um, his growth as a leader uh, was kind of interesting to see. And it, um, the diaries, the documents from all of his bosses bared out that he was doing a good job. Hmm. Interesting. That, just from that aspect, the book would be fascinating to read just to see from a leadership position, you know, uh, perspective, just to see that transition would be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I know there are always a lot of gaps in, in doing historical research, but was there a particular question that you would have loved to get answered that you just couldn't, uh, you couldn't find, you couldn't get the answer to some question? Yeah. I mean, uh, and maybe I got some hint of an answer, uh, I really would have liked to have found out what was the big light bulb moment when he finally decided to join the tank corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he kind of explains it in a lot of diaries and we mentioned him here, like, uh, I'll be a, the big fish. I'll be the first guy in. Uh, but it really is kind of odd because right before he makes the decision to join the tanks, one of his journal diary entries or letters to his wife is it's seemingly made up. He's going infantry and there doesn't seem to be like this or he doesn't write about it, or maybe it was lost, or they, you know, his family kept it. But there was no, I don't really know why he decided all of a sudden to say I'm going tanks. Um, uh, and the other thing, um, I, he explained why he was going to go back to the cavalry 
uh, branch after the war. Um, but his reasoning, it's, it's very, it's promotion and he wants to be a general officer, but I, I think there's still something more there, but he never wrote about it. Um, because he really did fall in love with tanks and made a name for himself. And so I find it part of me has trouble accepting the notion that he was so willing to go back to Calvary and he could have stayed in tanks. Um, and he ultimately, I think made the right decision because Brett stays in tanks and he's ends up when World War II starts, he's a Colonel and retires as a full Colonel. Um, so he never rose to anything greater than that. And never became a general. So I think Pat made the right call, but I would have liked to have found one or two more smoking guns on the decision to join and then the decision to leave the tank corps. Um, now you've, you've kind of touched on this next question, but was there anything, um, in this book that you found that emotionally moved you either positively or, or negatively? Um, yeah, a lot of his letters to his wife and his father, um, because some of his letters to his father and his father's responses remind me of some of the talks, uh, with my dad and my own, my uncle who were both, uh, career military officers. And some of the, the way the, it's a hundred years later, you know, 80 years later, the way they kind of, kind of put you in their, put you in a place where you're the little kid again, it's kind of, they both, Patton's dad did that pretty well. Um, and so I, that, that stood out. He really did view his dad as a, you know, big reason he turned out the way he did. And his dad ultimately was right. He should have maybe zipped it up, not spoken so much. Uh, as his dad warned him in a, in a letter. Um, th- so th- those affected me. The one thing too, that I didn't go into as much, cause again, it, this kind of story ends there. Um, and it's his written return home to, uh, from when he gets back with his family, he meets his kids and, you know, we now have a lot better idea about PTSD, things like this, uh, the effect of coming back from a long war. Um, but he has a real tough time adjusting to his kids, uh, particularly his youngest kid who he had never met because she was, uh, born, uh, right as he left. And when he meets her for the first time, she screams and says, like, mommy, who's this guy? And instead of being kind of more a sensitive guy, which he could be, he kind of he tells his wife, he's like, get her out of here and tell her to stop screaming. And those two will never really be that close. Um, I don't think it's because of this one incident, but I would have liked to get more into that. Um, it's just but that by that's 1920. So it's by that point, it's the story kind of ends. Mm-hmm. So apart from uh, filling uh, a historical gap, um, what else do you think, do you hope the book will do? Are there un- any other, any other um, things there? Yeah. Well, I hope we um, will get to understand that Patton developed his leadership traits, his persona um, in world war one. It was the ultimate science experiment for him. Um, and that, a lot of it, because again, that movie, the Patton movie, George C. Scott, weighs over Patton history, uh, because I do think Patton would have really liked George C. Scott's, uh, performance, uh, particularly the, uh, the voice, because Patton had a kind of high pitched, squeaky voice, which he did not like. Um, but I think it, it's something to think about is to, instead of viewing these World War II generals as like kind of these marble men that came out, did, 
disappeared in 1940 and were these great leaders. Um, it, what, it, he worked at it. And it's a good example of experience, why experience matters, why attending all these professional military courses matters, why these jobs that are not real romantic or not real exciting, but being a staff officer is key in developing future leaders, military leaders. And it's I would like to give the historical world, the public, a better view of how Patton became Patton. And it wasn't just this instant creation. Did you have any difficulties getting the book uh, finished or published? Uh, no, not really, because I, I had more trouble getting my, mainly my, because it, it's my first book. My book on Mark Clark was a little harder, uh, because no one knows who Mark Clark is. And 30 years ago, he was fairly well known, but in 2019, uh, and, you know, no one really knows who he is. But with Patton, I, I sent the, uh, proposal to one publisher and within a couple of days it was accepted. Um, and part of that I had published before, so that does help, but I also understood anything with patent tends to do okay. Uh, and, and that is because, uh, out of, we asked the average American name World War II generals, they'll always mention Eisenhower because he became president and they may maybe mention Marshall, but, and then they'll always mention Patton mainly from the movies. So I know, uh, the public is interested in Patton, and a lot of it does stem from that movie, but it's also, it's World War II's the big war for Americans, uh, as World War One is bigger in Europe than here. And it also, it, it's my job as a professor uh, for the U.S. Army. Um, the Army's moving to more conventional ops tanks again, and so I thought this was something that would be useful for some of my students down the line. I guess maybe uh, I, I might be kind of strange, but from the Patton movie, Omar Bradley really stands out for me. So he's always the general I think of. Well, and that's, yeah, and that's because he helped produce it. He provided a lot of the uh, help to, to get it written. And so that's why Bradley comes out looking really good. Mm. Uh, and Pat, Bradley was a competent field commander, don't get me wrong, but um, I, I think Patton was much better. Um, and I think the Battle of the Bulge, showed that Patton was was a very good commander, while Bradley was a step or two beneath that. Mm -hmm. uh, so speaking of that, actually, did you find anything, any of the operations that uh, Patton ran in World War One? did you see any parallels in any of what he did in World War II, or any particular um, battles? Uh, no, be, uh, and part of that is um, he, the the real big fight he's in, Meuse-Argonne, he gets wounded in the early hours. Um, and I don't make any grand statements like his tank corps won the war, turned the tide. They were a very small little piece. Um, and so there, these big flanking movements, uh, tip of the spear type things where they just, you know, travel fast and far, none of that happens. I think Patton wanted to do that. Uh, but he understood the machines, the tanks weren't ready for it. Um, there weren't enough of them. Um, but what it, the one thing he did, and this is a little probably more tactical, more specific, is he really learned, and part of this goes back to him being a cavalry officer, uh, he really understood how to rec reconnaissance terrain, read terrain. And what he was very good at in both world wars was he went forward to look at the terrain. Uh, because he understood that the terrain was kind of key to tanks. And um, I think that was one of the big takeaways. But uh, the first operation to uh, reduce the German salient 
in September 1918, it's uh, the Germans retreat. And he's actually, Patton's disappointed because there's not a lot of fighting. Um, but he learned a little bit about what the tanks can do. Uh, but in, even by the end of the war, he understood tanks played a small role in the war. Uh, they weren't the deciding factor, but he understood in 10, 20 years, technology is going to be better in those tanks. So it did shape his views, but uh, the, the fights he was in, much smaller, and he was knocked out of the Meuse-Argonne pretty early. Um, and Salerno Brett takes over and does a really good job. Um, but Patton learned that when the stuff, when tech gets better, then we can start doing these deep developments, these deep penetrations into the enemy lines. But just more one, they weren't there yet. What's your next writing project? Um, I've been getting that. I need to get an answer. I don't know. Um, I got three kids in elementary school, so that takes up some time. But no, I don't know. I, I jokingly talked about doing an interwar book on Patton, which. I don't know. I don't think there's a real public appetite for it, but there might be some interesting things in there. Um, and that could kind of be like a sequel to this origin story. So, but other than that, no, I've got a few ideas, but nothing real firm yet. Okay. Um, where can people find you on the web? So I, I know I'm part of that generation that's always on the Internet. So I'm, I'm on Facebook, John Michael Sheck. Uh, I'm on Twitter. At, at Slavo Shek, which I probably should change, but I had that since I was, I, I got on Twitter in 2008, long before most people. It's S-L-A-V-O-S-H-E-K. Um, I don't really tweet a lot, and all I do is pretty much follow sports news. Uh, so okay. that's, but that's where you can reach me. Um, feel free. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, uh, thanks for having me. Good luck with the podcast. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar on Instagram at Chris Alvarez War Scholar, and on Twitter at War Scholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. Thank you.